Today has been really stressful. We had a workout this morning. It went okay, and then just that five and a half hour wait or something, I was just like shaking, could barely nap. I've just never felt like this going into a competition before, and I tried to go out here and have fun and warm up in the back, went a little bit better, but then once I came out here, I was like, no, mental is not there, so I just need to let the girls do it and focus on myself. Had Simone Biles right there pulling out of the gymnastics competition. The U.S. takes the silver. DJ and PK brought to you in part by The Warehouse. Join Hans and Scotty G Friday at The Warehouse from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Price is so low, it'll blow your mind. Boom! I have to provide my own. Boom! Right there until PK gets back from vacation. We're going to talk with Riley Jensen here in a minute. Riley Jensen, former Utah State quarterback, worked here at the zone for a while. Now he's got his own company, and he is a mental performance coach working with uh, Ral Salt Lake and working with uh, Utah State, Weber State. He's got other clients as well. And he joins us right now on the Smart Rain guest line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate, Best of State Award winner Smart Rain is giving away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit smartrain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more info. Riley, good morning. What's going on? that time of year i can smell football in the air we got the olympics going on it's all kind of fun stuff yes but now there is controversy at the olympics because simone biles arguably the face of the olympics coming off four gold medals in 2016 and a fifth medal that was bronze pulls out of the competition and that shocks people and hard to believe but this has been politicized already i mean why wouldn't it be it's gymnastics naturally it's political And I'm curious what you think when you watch this, but I have to say, I feel like a judge here. I'm going to give you very little latitude here. I feel like I'm in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not Simone Biles. We're not in Japan. We're not talking to her. So all the people who popped up on social media with these opinions about what's wrong with American youth, I'm like, have you even talked to her? How How can you know from half a world away? Well, I guess you don't have to know to pop off. You get to just pop off. So I don't know how much you want to speak about that. I Eventually, I want, and pretty quickly, I want this conversation to go to, you know, parents of high school athletes and college athletes, and because we keep hearing about this. But first, do you have anything on what you heard from Simone Biles, anything that with your experience starts checking boxes? Well, I think I listen. I think the the most important thing for us to remember here, and with the athletes that I work with, whether they're professional or high level college athlete athletes or Olympic athletes, it's that these are human beings, right? With with real feelings, with with real thoughts, with you know, they're, they're not made of Teflon. And I know there's a lot of people out there wondering, you know, is this a is this a real win for mental health, or is this a is this a big loss for athletic grit? And I think I, I think it's way more nuanced than that. And and in in the world that we live in, and the Twitterverse that we live in, and the Instagram world that we live in, I know everybody wants to have like a a, a clear cut picture as to what's exactly going on. But I think you're right. I think this is nuanced. I think this is. I think first and foremost, I'm just concerned for her. Um, I'm there, there's one side of me that's super proud of her for, for, you know, being able to speak up and talk about these things. And, 
this may be hundreds of thousands of lives of young men and young women that she's influenced to be able to at least speak about how she's really feeling or he's really feeling. And, and I think it can be really, really helpful. And, and then there's, you know, there's the older group, there's the old school group that's like, yeah, but whatever happened to grit, whatever happened to fighting through. And, and like you said, we don't know. I mean, we just don't know. I, I would hope that, that athletes are still battling through things and doing those sorts of things. But I also would hope that we've changed a little bit and that we're willing to, um, recognize that the mental health and the mental stability and the mental toughness of these athletes that we're working with is, is paramount. And that it's something that's really important and it's a key component to success and a key component to performance. And, and we're seeing it right before our eyes. Well, I find it hard to believe that I was reading stuff about grit last night. I'm thinking, well, you probably don't win four Olympic gold medals without grit. So she's got it. In that regard, the fact that we're discussing here someone who is a proven winner at this level removes a piece of the conversation that might have accompanied another athlete at this level who was at this level for the first time. So I think oh, yeah, I that think that changes it. I mean, she's just too accomplished. No, no question. I, I mean, well, it would be hard for me to imagine even a person who hadn't won four gold medals like she has and hadn't had the grit and and the the winner's attitude that she's had in the past. It would be hard for me to imagine somebody that had put five years of their life into trying to get to the Olympics and trying to perform at their highest level. I mean, I can't imagine the you know the the crevice that she came up to that 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 she had to analyze and say, you know, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't think I can do this. I don't know if it's right for my team. I don't know if, if it's right for me. It's a possibility I could get hurt. There's all kinds of different things going on. And I just can't even imagine someone who hadn't won a medal that, that would just back out for no reason, right? For no reason at all. I mean, these people are competitors. They want to win. Of course she wants to win. And so, it's it's really easy to you know to get on our platforms and it seems like everybody has a platform lately and and just kind of to say like oh yeah this is this is the way it is and I, I can't believe she did this or or this is the way it is I can't believe that anyone would ever criticize her I I, I mean I can kind of see a little bit of both sides but I think what you have to do in that case is you need to take off your fandom hat and put on your human being hat and just say. I'm, I'm worried about this on a whole level. Like, what, what are we doing to athletes? And what are we doing to high school kids? What are we doing to college kids? It's making them feel this much pressure that they can't even perform in a sport that they, that they love. I talked to Tim Lacombe about this a while ago, and I was asking him, uh, how much more time were you spending on athletes' mental health at the end of your coaching career than you were at the start. And he was just like snorting, making noises. He couldn't even speak in words. So much more. I don't know. 80% more. A lot more. And so, and then subsequently talking to other coaches, well, he's just right in line with what everybody else is saying. So is, is something happening to this generation of kids? And a lot of people go straight to social media and phones. And I'm, there's other things. Could there be environmental factors, food factors? You know, th- there could be a lot of stuff. Is there something I, I, going on you've seen in this generation? Because you played in a previous generation. You know, you're older than these current athletes. You're younger than me and PK. 
And we certainly heard suck it up. And we talked with Steve Cleveland about this, about how things have changed, because he played, he's a little older than PK and I, and he played for a generation of coaches who went through the Depression and World War II, which had its own mental health issues that got addressed in a very different way. So we're kind of evolving here, for better or worse, going sideways. I don't know how you would say it, but for parents who are of one generation, what are they supposed to be looking for in their kids to figure out if their kids are struggling or not? When I, when, when I talk to parents, I ask them all the time, what's your job as a parent? What's your job as a coach? Right? And those are two different questions, but your job as a coach is to help your athletes to perform at the highest level. And this generation is different. And, and yes, we can point to social media, and I think there's, I think there's some strong evidence that's talking about our smartphones and, and some of those things. But I think there's also a little bit, and, and this might be just a little bit of a different angle, when, when you look at the AAUs and all the comp teams and the club teams and all these different things, um, we have taken away the art of practice, in my opinion, Meaning we play so many basketball games, we play so many baseball games, we play so many soccer games that we've lost that ability for a kid to go out and actually just play in his yard and actually kind of mess around like, and make mistakes where like nobody can see where it's not really a big deal. And so there's, I think what's happening to me is that pressure has been on kids a lot longer because they're, they're always in games. You know, when I was young, David, when I was learning how to throw a curveball for Little League Baseball, I mean, I probably worked on it for two years in practice in the backyard with my dad, messing around with my brother, kind of messing around with the sweat on my forehead to see if I could get it to move more, all that kind of stuff. You cheater! Yeah, before I ever, before I ever actually, like, put it into a game or actually threw a curveball in a game, and now you're talking about eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds on comp teams, and you're learning a curveball on the fly, and you're learning it, and, and you throw one up around somebody's eyes, and they hit a home run, and all of a sudden you feel all this pressure, like you let your teammates down, you let your dad down, you let your family down. And I think we can do a better job as parents of, of just telling our kids that we love to watch them play, regardless of outcome. I mean, it's a really good thing to say to your kid is, like, I love to watch you play. And then as a coach – like being really, really attentive as to why you want them to do things the way that you want them to do it. It's really hard to do as a coach. It used to be old school coaches were like, well, you do what I say because I'm the coach and that's what you do. Well, this generation wants to know why. Why am I doing this drill? Why am I making this effort? And when they know why, they work just as hard as any generation ever has. But that's harder work for coaches. But I tell coaches all the time, but if you want to win and if you want to be a good coach, you've got to make that extra effort. It's different now. And, and whether you like it or not, it's different. Athletes are different. And I think, I think we're seeing this, right? We're seeing that athletes, as much as they win, they, they still have their frailties and their weaknesses. And I think it's okay for us not to be okay. I think it's okay for us to admit that something's not quite right. Now, what the reaction is to that, I mean, there's always going to be consequences to that. There's always going to be the fanatics out there that, say different things and do different things, but that's why we have to tune out a little bit. We have to focus on what's what's most important now. Not to debate anything you said, but I just think additionally, a separate chapter, there seems to be a baseline of stress and anxiety that people are bringing to 
It doesn't matter what. I mean, it could be bringing it to sports. They could be bringing it to music. They could be bringing it to the classroom. They could be bringing it to drama, whatever. There just seems to be a baseline of stress and anxiety. How do you get people to deal with that? Well, I think part of that falls into this. this there, there's a huge problem in our society with perfectionism. If, if I had to tell you how many people that I deal with on a day-to-day basis that are dealing with perfectionism, it's, it's a large number. Over 80% of the people that I work with are perfectionists. And what that does to us is it, is it sinks our boat before we actually get into the battle, right? And, and we just have to be careful about that. And I, what I'm trying to switch things to is helping people to realize that it's important to try to be excellent, not perfect, and, and excellence is a whole different stage. And, and here's how I'll explain it to you. I think when I ask people, if I were to ask most of our listeners, who do you think the most successful program in the country is? They'd say Clemson. They'd say Alabama. You know, well, I'd, I, and then I turn to them and ask them, so has Alabama won the national championship the last five years in a row? No, LSU's won it. Clemson's won it. Whatever team that they select, they usually, I mean, they haven't won it all in a row. But they're, Alabama or Clemson is always knocking on the door. They're always in the conversation, or Ohio State's in the conversation. And so that's what excellence is. It's not being perfect. It's just that you're always in the conversation, and you're doing your best to be in the conversation. You're going to win some. You're going to lose some. But when we become completely outcome-focused, which it's hard not to do, right? But when we're completely outcome-focused, we're setting ourselves up for failure because there's always going to be somebody with a nicer car, a bigger house, more prestige, who's a better athlete than you, who runs faster than you, who jumps higher than you, and you're just setting yourself up for failure. You can be really, really, really good at something and, 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 and be really good at what you do and maybe not be the best in any particular category. So to bring this full circle... If you meet someone who's got a lot of stress and anxiety and they're not quite to that moment in the competition that Simone Biles was at, maybe they're a little out, how do you know whether to tell someone to grit it out, press forward, it'll be okay, do your thing, and how do you know to advise someone, hey, pull back, pull out, hit reset, let somebody else step in, you know, in the case of the Olympics, they got the alternates there. And maybe someone should have told Simone Biles that three or four days ago. Or maybe this just did happen in the moment. But sometimes it's building up. But how do you advise someone, a parent or a coach who's in the middle of that process? Yeah, I think, well, and, and like, like you said at the beginning of this conversation, it's, it's tough for me to, to tell you exactly what's going on with Simone because I, I don't know exactly what's going on with her. Right. But I think... I think there were some signs, um, even in in qualification rounds, that, that there was something going on with her. It wasn't it wasn't the the person that performed in the Rio Olympics, right? And my guess is that there's been some some good efforts both in the sports psychology world, um, in the clinical psychology world, for her to be able to work through some of these things. And I think that they they were going on good faith that like, hey, some of these tools like breathing techniques grounding techniques, noting techniques that these psychological tools that you can put in your tool belt and pull out during competition that they become very, very helpful um, would, would work and would prevail over time. Clearly when we, when we got to competition, it wasn't working. And I think 
some of that is up to the individual player. Like they have to manage like what they can do and what they can't. What I worry about is is can crippling sport anxiety lead to an accident that that could cause a lot of damage to someone or or cause you know a serious injury. That's that's where I start feeling like it crosses the line. Like if I feel like somebody is is not able to, to, or uses the tools and is unable to see any sort of a difference in their, you know, in their anxiousness or in their nervousness or in whatever it is that they're feeling. And then they're going to go do, you know, a triple flip with two twists and try and land. I mean, that's where I think this is a little bit different line than maybe some different things that we've seen where, you know, she's 10, 11, 12 feet in the air upside down. And if she's not able to execute that move at a, at a good pace, we could see a serious injury. And so my guess is some sort of conversation took place there that like, hey, if you don't feel like you can do this, let's 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 save this for another day. There's no reason um, to, to to risk physical harm. So I think that's where the line becomes is the conversation with the athlete. Do you think you can still compete and do the normal things that you've normally done? And if the answer is no, because of the anxiousness, then then maybe you have to you have to take a different route. Well, I think we'll leave it right here with the Jerry Sloan quote because who was tougher than the ultimate tough guy? Who was grittier than Jerry Sloan? And Jerry Sloan, and you had to hear him speak in person a lot, maybe to fully appreciate this. But you know, he could really project, right? He could make his voice heard to the referee across the court and all that kind of stuff. Um, but just really quietly saying. You never know what's going on in somebody else's life. Well, and, and especially with pro athletes, especially with pro athletes, nobody really cares what's going on in their lives. I, I've seen, you know, studies where, you know, a pro basketball player is going through a really, really difficult custody battle for his children, and he loves his children, and he's going through all these things, and people can't figure out why he's not scoring 20 and 10, and he's a bum, and he's not playing the way that he should, right? Right. You just never know what's going on. And typically, and, and rightfully so, a lot of these pro athletes like to keep their private life private, right? They don't like, you know, their wives, their spouses, their kids to be involved in the news or in what's going on in their lives. So they keep that quiet. And, you know, the, the, the guy on the 17th row is yelling at him because he's not scoring 20 and 10 anymore. Well, there's a lot going on in his life. We just never know. We just I, never know. I always thought Jerry was informed by, uh, you know, his own life because I think for a long time he had some level of, um, if not survivor's guilt, and maybe he had that, I don't know, um, but at least kind of analyzing and trying to process why he took the job at his alma mater at Evansville where he'd been a player on an undefeated team and he was going to, you know, in, in a small community that has a lot of pride in its college basketball program, and he was going to lead it back to glory. And, he, you know, he had a lot of memories there. And then he suddenly steps away. He just suddenly leaves and says, nope, I shouldn't do this job. And he's got friends at the university, uh, you know, in the program and all of that. And there's a plane crash, and it's tragic. You can look it up, Evansville Aces and all that. And, Jerry, how come I wasn't on that plane? You wouldn't be human if that didn't stay with you for a long time. And so when he says you never know what's going on in somebody's life, you never know how you're circling back to this event that happened years earlier, you know, and trying to process that. And you're right that even without something like that, 
you know, are you going something in, with your marriage? Are your kids going through something? Uh, your parents, you're working with college athletes. You know, are they losing grandparents? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on we don't know about. So, Yeah, and I think, I mean, Jerry, and I, I, I don't know if it was you who told me this or pointed it out to me while he was coaching. I can't remember who pointed it out to me, but it, if you watched him, he was, he was less, uh, menacing and less difficult on the players in a loss than he was in a win. Yeah, he was true. much harder on those players <laughs> in a win yeah. situation than a loss. And I don't know if that was because of Dr. Keith Henson, who is, was his old buddy that he played against at Ball State while he was in college and was the sport psychology consultant for the Jazz for many years. I don't know if that was on his advice or just Jerry learning over the years, like, hey, you know, the time – the time to prove points and to give lessons is in wins, not losses. But he was he was better at the psychological game than I think a lot of us think. I think we all can do a little bit better in the psychological game. I mean, if nothing else, if you're a parent, like quit turning your car into a coffin, you know? Like don't kill your kids on the drive home. Like give yourself forty five minutes for both of you to cool down before you talk about the game. And and just that advice alone can be really, really beneficial. And I get it. It's emotional. I get it. It's your kid. I get it. You know, it's somehow you're invested in it. But but the better we can do to create an environment where where kids get to enjoy and learn how to work hard. And then, you know, if you get to play college, or you get to go to the Olympics or you get to play professional like that's icing on the cake, but there's nothing wrong with being a really, really good high school player and, um, and learning, learning from sports and learning about life and learning how to love your kids. And it's, it's, it's important. It's important. I can't imagine how Simone's parents are feeling right now, you know, not being able to be in Japan and be able to give her a hug and love her up. I'm sure there's plenty of phone calls going on, but man, sometimes just that, that touch from your parents, that non-tactile touching where a little hug that releases oxytocin into the system can be really powerful. Riley, as always, we appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me on. I can't wait to do the football season, so let's get it going. It won't be long now. We're almost there. Thanks, Riley. Thanks, man. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Coming up in 30 minutes, Eric Walden, Utah Jazz beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. That's coming up in half an hour, talking draft with him. Coming up next, a Kyle Whittingham quote from Pac-12 Media Day. It's ominous. It needs to be taken seriously. It's one of those times when Kyle is quietly telling us the truth. You need to listen to it, read it. Read it again, absorb it, and think about what it really means. He's telling you the truth, not trying to hit you with a sledgehammer, but the truth is a sledgehammer. And we'll get to that next. Stay with us. Win, win, win. It's a win ticket Wednesday on the Zone Sports Network. It's a win ticket Wednesday right here. Win. Listen all day for the win ticket Wednesday sounder for your chance to win tickets. What? Authorized that to all the biggest concerts, games, and other great events here in the state of Utah. It's a win ticket Wednesday right here. Right here. Right here. Right here. Woo! On 97.5, 1280 the zone and the zone sports network. 
Westwood One Sports presents this special update on the 2020 Summer Games. Katie Ledecky has never lost a competitive 1,500-meter freestyle race, but until now, the event was never part of the Olympics. Added for Tokyo, Ledecky took advantage of her first gold medal of these games, the seventh of her career. Also in swimming, Americans Erica Sullivan and Alex Walsh both won silver medals, Kate Douglas a bronze. The debut of 3x3 basketball, the reviews have been favorable. U.S. women beat France in the semifinals 18-16, then beat ROC 18-15. The U.S. won the gold. Baseball is back in the Olympics, and host Japan opened up 4-3 over the Dominican Republic. U.S. plays Israel on Friday. In tennis, where they've been battling the heat, Andy Murray won the last two gold medals in singles, not playing singles in Tokyo, but he was in the doubles. Murray lost his match today. With this Summer Games update, I'm John Stashower, Westwood One Sports. The update from Tokyo brought to you in part by Zero Res. When you get the carpets cleaned, it's never just clean, it's Zero Res clean. Don't have it any other way. Just $33 per room clean, plus a fourth room free. You deserve the best. You deserve Zero Res. Schedule with Zero Res today by calling them at 801-288-9376. 801-288-9376 or schedule online by searching for Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. And if you want that fourth room for free, you got to ask for it. Pro tip. They're not going to bring it up. You have to. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Pac-12 Media Day. Pat Kinahan, Jake Scott, a nine-hour marathon from Los Angeles. There's a lot to mull over there, and we will mull it all over in the run-up to college football. We just had Riley Jensen on, and he can't wait. He's a huge, huge college football fan. We got like five weeks here until the... The thing really gets rolling. I guess four weeks to week zero. And he will be joining us weekly, uh, as usual. So there's plenty to mull over, but there's one quote I want to focus on right now. Because obviously realignments at the front with Texas and Oklahoma, leaving the Big 12, headed for the SEC. Kyle Whittingham was asked about it. Now Kyle, many times, has told us the truth in his quietly understated way. But he means it. He says it. He's been talking realignment for a long time. He told both PK and I 10 years ago that after Utah joined the Pac-12, this is just the start. We're headed for four 16-team leagues. Now, I haven't spoken to him since the Texas-Oklahoma news broke. He might retract four 16s. He might say it's headed in another direction, that the math is going to be a little different. But to his bigger point that it's not done changing, it's going to keep changing. He is absolutely holding on to that. The quote he gave, uh, and Stuart Mandel has it in The Athletic. Other people may have it, I don't know, but that's where I saw it. Um, This is just the beginning. The entire landscape of college football and its structure is going to change dramatically. Bottom line is everyone's got to situate themselves in the best financial arrangement, and everyone's going to be scrambling and not be left out. Now, that doesn't sound on the surface all that revolutionary. This is just the beginning. Okay, Oklahoma and Texas is just the beginning, just the beginning of this round, because Penn State was an independent for a long time, and that was, a, that was big news when they joined the Big Ten. When Arkansas left the Southwest Conference for the SEC, that was big news. When the half the SWC, the Southwest Conference, blew off the other half 
and joined with the Big 8 to make the Big 12, that was big news. When Missouri, Nebraska, and Colorado bolted the Big 12, that was big news. When the ACC raided the Big East multiple times, that was big news. Have I made my point or should I just keep beating the dead horse to death? There's been a no, lot. please continue. There's been a lot over the last 30 years. And I know there was realignment before that and, and conference affiliations have changed. But when the Supreme Court said the NCAA doesn't control college football rights, the teams put on the games and they control them and they can assign their rights to conferences. 1984. 1984. Oklahoma and Georgia, I think, brought that lawsuit. Correct. It was the Regents of Oklahoma was what was the official title on it. So that set off another, another wave of realignment. And it's just one wave after another. The entire landscape of college football, to think the Pac-12 is going to be immune from this because of geography, you can argue it should be immune, and I get that argument. But when Kyle says the entire landscape of college football and its structure is going to change dramatically, there are people out there saying, well, if the Big Ten isn't going to make a move, the ACC and Pac-12 need to, because they are going to get picked over by the SEC and the Big Ten. The strongest survive, and they just cut up one league, they're going to come for the other two. And when Kyle says bottom line is everyone's going to situate themselves in the best financial arrangement, are you in a better arrangement if you are aligned with USC? I don't think you have to think too hard on that. The answer is yes. You are in a better arrangement. And that arrangement has worked for a long time for Oregon State. It started working for Arizona in the late 70s. And it started working for Utah about 10 years ago. But should those schools think they're always aligned With USC? I mean, if they weren't, that'd be a dramatic change. But here's Kyle. The entire landscape of college football and its structure is going to change dramatically. What do you think he's talking about? Bottom line is, everyone's got to situate themselves in the best financial arrangement. The story that Stuart Mandel wrote, and he cites some, some people who do this kind of work and who project where rights fees and ratings and where uh, linear TV and cable TV and linear broadcast television and streaming is going. He says the Pac-12, by the end of their next deal, is going to be at $60 bucks. Sweet, because the SEC is at $60 million with Oklahoma Texas. Yeah, except by then, the SEC is supposed to be at $90 million. The, the SEC is going to keep, and the Big Ten, are going to keep piling up the cash. And if you don't think they're going to look at USC and Oregon one day, read Kyle's quote again. Everyone's got to situate themselves in the best financial arrangement, and everyone's going to be scrambling to not be left out. Are the Utes locked in and secure in the Pac-12? Not in a way Ute fans hoped a decade ago. At some point, college sports will stop chasing its tail. But... A lot more schools may get left out and may get hurt before that happens. At some point, the richest, most powerful schools have to realize you still have to play somebody. You don't get stronger by cutting out the two teams at the bottom. Or four teams at the bottom. Because somebody's got to be the bottom. Oklahoma and Texas are used to being the big dogs. I know Texas hasn't really done that for a decade. 
But how's that going to work for Texas if they're in a division with LSU? Texas may be looking at Missouri thinking they can handle them, but Texas has been looking at Iowa State thinking they can handle them too. Somebody's got to be the middle and the bottom. And there's been plenty of speculation about whether leagues should come in, the Big Ten or the ACC should come in and grab four or six or eight Pac-12 teams. But somebody's got to be the bottom. Where is the point of diminishing returns? We don't need Oregon State or Washington State or Arizona or Utah or whoever else. I don't know. Utah hasn't been anywhere near the bottom in football. They've got it going and seem to be in the top half of the division most of the time. But whoever it is, in whatever league, whoever's at the bottom can bounce up. And whoever is at the bottom, well, somebody's got to be at the bottom. I mean, if you just make a league out of Alabama and Auburn and LSU and Oklahoma and Iowa State and Michigan and USC and Oregon, someone's going to have to finish eighth. You're going to cut them out because they don't bring as much? At some point, there's diminishing returns and people have to realize that. And I think the moment is right now for the Pac-12 to try to make that point and say, hey, there's got to be another way to up the value other than by cannibalizing another league. And it's easiest for the Pac-12 to make that point because they don't have anyone obvious to cannibalize. People smarter than me have suggested scheduling agreements between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. And you create a guaranteed number of games there. And then you put all your rights in. And I think you got to know if CBS is staying in. Fox and ESPN are in. And if CBS is staying in, I would copy the NFL. The NFL for a long time parceled out their deals and sometimes left one network out there until NBC Sunday Night Football. They brought NBC back in. Hey, there's four networks. Let's have three packages. Nobody wants to be out. Musical chairs will maximize the value. And it worked. The NBC thing was just more of a, you guys, we don't need you and we'll prove it. And then eventually. Come back on in. Come on back into the NFL family. Yeah. And let's open up a new time slot and, and let's have you open up that bank account. Yeah, let's make lots of money. Well, do it different. Instead of trying to make a coast-to-coast league, why not take two leagues that are already aligned and are coast-to-coast, cut back to eight conference games, schedule a bunch of games in our conference, divvy them up into packages, and then invite people, hey, how about this package? How about that package? I mean, they're already being divvied up. Fox has the rights to the Big 12 and sells games to ESPN. Fox has the rights to the Big 10 and sells games to ESPN. And ESPN and Fox have divvied up the Pac-12. You create the packages, 26 teams, four time zones, two leagues. It's going to be hard to argue antitrust and say you got a monopoly when the SEC is over here bigger than both of you. I think that's the way for the Pac-12 to go. And they almost did it five or six years ago, and then they didn't. You know, we had this question up, and someone said, what should the, you know, the question was, what should the Pac-12 do? And someone said, figure out what Larry Scott did and do the opposite. <laughs> okay, that's funny. But now apply it to real life. They almost did the scheduling thing, and then they didn't. Well, if you didn't do it under Larry Scott, do it now that he's gone. And I get there are probably more obstacles than just Larry. It's fun to make fun of Larry. He's walking away a millionaire and 
the Pac-12's in trouble. But trouble can be good. Creates opportunity to do things a different way. Uh, what we're doing isn't enough. It isn't working. we got to do something else. And I think there'd be plenty of votes for it in the Big Ten for the same reason there are plenty of votes in the Pac-12. Nobody wants Ohio State. Nobody in the Big Ten wants Ohio State and Michigan to leave and join the SEC. The SEC would never do that. Really? Go ask Oklahoma State if the SEC would do that. I think there's plenty of votes for this in the Big Ten. I'm thinking there's about 12 votes for it. And maybe there's 13 or 14. Maybe Michigan, Oklahoma State say, hey, we can have our cake and eat it too. What do we need to go, go over there and play all those guys for? All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. The Salt Lake Bees will start a six-game homestand against the Sacramento Rivercats on Thursday, August 12th through August 17th. Come out and support the Bees. It's better at the ballpark. Tickets on sale now at slbees.com. We have a four-pack of tickets to the game on Friday, August 13th. For caller number 12 right now at 855-340-ZONE. 855-340-ZONE. 855-340-9663. All right, there you go. One more time. Hold on to this, Kyle, because Kyle, uh, Kyle doesn't blow smoke about this stuff. Just think about this quote and let it sink in. This is just the beginning. The entire landscape of college football and its structure is going to change dramatically. Bottom line is, everyone's got to situate themselves in the best financial arrangement. And everyone's going to be scrambling to not be left out. USC and Oregon are not going to keep losing to SEC schools. Well, SEC schools have 50% more TV money than USC and Oregon. They're not doing it. And Kyle's not lying. So let that quote sink in. DJ and PK, the NBA draft is tomorrow. Eric Walden, jazz beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune in 15 minutes. Stay with us. The Big Show. The Big Show. With Jake Scott and Gordon Monson. Greg Rubel, voice of the BYU Cougars. Let's say the Big 12 just says every university for itself. Maybe people would think that's a negative scenario for BYU, but might it be a positive because they do bring more value than a lot of those schools that all of a sudden would be scrambling? If you were to talk about making an athletics-based and market-based decision for your league in its long-term future, BYU could be a valuable asset. Once you start getting into everything else involving philosophies and fit and all the things that have tended to ruffle some feathers in the highest offices in the past, well, then things get somewhat complicated. But the things that really drive these decisions, BYU checks a lot of boxes for whichever league we're interested. Catch the Big Show weekdays from 2 to 7. Presented by Big O Tires. The team you trust. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Live Nation. Listen to the Big Show every day. July 28th through August 1st. That's today. Starts today. For your chance to win tickets to see your favorite artist at USANA Amphitheater. We'll be giving away a pair of tickets every day to KISS, 311, Lady A, and Alanis Morissette. And here's the best part. You get to pick which concert you want to attend. Get your tickets at LiveNation.com. Brought to you by Live Nation. Well, PK's fond of saying we all have our biases. Admit your bias. We all have them. It's not like they're getting any, any hosts or any listeners. Who are bias-free. So admit your bias while you bring us the news. Yach was just bringing me news during the commercial break. Admit your bias, Yach. Well, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan. Uh-huh. And, and what college team did you grow up rooting for? Well, I grew up a Cougar. Right. So. So. 
What news did you just share with me during the break? Well, this is coming across that Trey Lance, who was the number three overall selection in the NFL draft by the San Francisco 49ers. Ah, you're up to date on Niner news. Shocking. Adam Schefter breaking this, that he has signed his four-year, $34.1 million fully guaranteed deal. Wait a minute. How much was that? $34.1 million fully guaranteed. Okay. Well, that leaves only one first-round draft pick from the NFL draft who remains unsigned. And that would be the one, the only, Zach Wilson. So the Niners and a former BYU quarterback and two stories come together and you're the one who sees it first. Fully motivated to see those stories. Well, you know, my <laughs> timeline's been curated to exactly send some news my way. $34.1 million. So there was a time when rookies held out. That time is long gone. Drafts have salary structure and wages built in. There's a very narrow window to negotiate. And Zach gets over $34 million if he signs. Because he was a Sanga pick. So he's going to be slotted ahead of... His deal is somewhere around $36 million overall. So this is really just a footnote. We always knew these two guys are going to sign these two deals and what neighborhood it's going to be in. Sure. And you negotiate everything, and there's some clause they're arguing over. I don't have the energy for it because I think when the season starts, Trey Lance is going to run out there, and Zach's going to run out there. Zach will be a starter. Trey will be a backup. Mm -hmm. But how long will Trey be a backup for? To me, that's a much more interesting story. Reading up on this yesterday, Wilson's issue is the offset language in his deal, which is if he were to be cut in the uh-huh. first four years, uh-huh. the money, and that's how that would be paid out. So, And my eyes are rolling back into the top I'm just, of my head. I'm just adding to the, <laughs> to the allure. I'm sure the they're story. arguing over something. If that's what they're arguing over, they can go over there and argue and knock themselves out. I'll be over here doing other stuff. But you make a very good point. Yeah, Come week one. Zach's out there as the starter. Yes, he is. And Trey Lance is on the sideline with a baseball cap because Jimmy G's starting. For now. For now. Hey, once upon a time, Tom Brady, the only really major injury he suffered, and I know a minor injury is an injury that happens to someone else, and he played through the MCL, but he tore his ACL in the first quarter of game one. Correct. So it's easy to say you're going to be over there on the sideline. And Aaron Rodgers played every snap, and Jordan Love never got on the field last year. But in another year, Tom Brady got knocked out for the year in the first quarter of the first game. So everything's on the table, and Trey Lance had better be ready. Because to quote Jerry Sloan for the second time this hour, nobody here is redshirting. Everybody's checks clear on the 1st and 15th. So be ready to go. And also... There's just been too much quarterback talk with the Niners. It feels like they went to the Super Bowl despite Jimmy Garoppolo. Not because of him. In spite of him, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had that loser behind center, but we got there. Uh, I don't get it. Hey, they want to know if they can get Aaron Rodgers, and I get it, Aaron's an upgrade. They're drafting third, they're taking a quarterback. There's just too much. Is he going to be on the roster Sunday? I don't know if we're going to be alive Sunday. Thank you, Kyle Shanahan. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Jimmy, would you quit sucking all the time? You're a disgrace. That's basically the Niners' attitude towards Garoppolo. And I get he's not the best quarterback in the league. But it seems like the worst quarterback to be is the quarterback who 
not a Super Bowl quarterback, but you are a playoff quarterback. You can get multiple teams, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, man, people will just de- – yeah. Roethlisberger was two-time Super Bowl quarterback. Now he gets his team to the playoff, but the Steelers, like, it's over. We don't really want him back. I mean, they did start 11-0. How badly could he have sucked? They did lose five in the last six. That seems to be much more important than the winning 11 in a row. They're ready to give up on him. Alex Smith, clearly a playoff quarterback, took three different teams to the playoffs. I think overall I have to look it up, but I think he played in the playoffs six or seven times. But he only won a couple of games. He wasn't at the Super Bowl level. Phillip Rivers, another guy in that in that group. But Grapple is not alone. And the Rams, they went to the Super Bowl and they traded Goff. Thanks. Don't let the door hit you. All right, we're taking a break. When we come back, Eric Walden, Jazz beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. The Jazz are going to trade out of that 30th spot. We'll ask him that next. Stay with us.